y'all. Amber Hunt here. We have some news at Crimes of the Centuries. As of now, this show is part of Grab Bag Collab, the Patreon-based podcasting network I founded with Tony Award-winning actor and podcaster Daisy Egan and Amanda Rossman, my longtime collaborator on all things journalism, most notably our hit investigative podcast, Accused, which was named a top 25 true crime podcast by Rolling Stone magazine. Now, you might be wondering, what does this mean for me? Well, it means that if you're interested in getting early ad-free episodes of Crimes of the Centuries, you can do so at patreon.com slash grabbagcollab. And if you do that, you'll have access to a hodgepodge of other shows. Right now, we've got an advice podcast about secrets called Dear Daisy, a gossip-laden game show hosted by Rebecca Lavoie called Other People's Problems, a Love is Blind recap show called Shut the F Up, Nick Lachey with Daisy and Broadway superstar Ellen Marsh, plus much more to come. Here, though, we'll give you a sampling of the show most aligned with Crimes of the Centuries. The Catalyst is a program created, narrated, and edited by Amanda Rossman and me, and co-written by historian Jen Erdman, that delves into the upbringings and evolutions of some of history's worst criminals. This serves as just a taste of what else you'll get over at Grab Bag Collab if you subscribe to support Crimes This Centuries there, too. Remember to join, go to patreon.com slash grabbackcollab and feel good knowing that whatever money we make there, we share with all of our creators in the hopes of making more content for years to come. Please stay tuned for The Catalyst. People interested in true crime are always baffled by the why. Why would someone do these things? What path in life could possibly have led them to commit such atrocious acts? In this podcast, we aim to explore the upbringings and backgrounds of some of history's worst criminals, but with a twist. Because we want you to set aside what you already know about them, we won't use their names until the end of the show so you can listen anew and hopefully get insight into the question that haunts us the most. Why did they do it? Join us as we explore The Catalyst. What would you do for a strawberry milkshake or whatever your favorite flavor is? Would you walk a long distance? Would you give up something important to you? Would you confess to more than 600 murders to, in part, continue to get sweet, sweet strawberry milkshakes? That's what the drifter did for several weeks during 1983, stringing law enforcement along as he gave them details that only the killer would know in case after case after case. Detectives came from all over the country in hopes of closing their cold cases, and most went home satisfied they could finally give families some quote-unquote closure. But the question had to be asked, was this too good to be true? Was this one man, sometimes working with a partner, really able to kill hundreds of people in a little more than 20 years? Was the drifter a liar who wanted special favors like his milkshakes, or was he one of the most prolific serial killers of all time? The drifter was born into a life of extreme poverty and violence. The youngest of nine, he was born in 1936 in rural Virginia, By 36, America was deep into the Great Depression, with farmers and rural poor being hit with economic struggles long before the stock market crash. 
To add to the family's economic troubles, the drifter's father wasn't able to work due to being a double amputee. He had lost both of his legs in a train accident and would pull himself on a small cart trying to sell pencils on the street. His father would die when the drifter was 15 of hypothermia or pneumonia, sources differ, after getting drunk and getting stuck in the snow. As many do in dire times, the drifter's mother turned to sex work. Those who knew her described her as mean as a rattlesnake and right harsh. According to Mike Cox's book on the drifter, she was either too indifferent or too drunk to shoo away her family when she conducted her business in a front room of their house. Given her line of work, rumors swirled that the drifter's father was not her husband. She didn't help to dispel those rumors when she moved a longtime lover into their house. When the drifter came home from school one day to find them having sex, his mother threatened to beat him if he didn't stay and watch. And as if his early childhood wasn't bad enough, he had multiple injuries to contend with at a time when his family wouldn't have been able to afford medical care. When he was eight, his mother beat him on the head with a wooden plank. He spent three days in a coma before waking and eventually recovering. Only two years later, while fighting with one of his brothers, the brother stabbed the drifter in the left eye with a knife. His mother ignored the injury and it became so infected that when a teacher hit him over the eye with a steel ruler, brace yourself, this is bad, his eyeball burst. It was surgically removed and replaced with a prosthetic made of glass. Other claims from his childhood are no less astounding. His mother forced him to wear a girl's clothes, even to school, with some historians believing that she had done this to groom the drifter for future sex work. When he arrived at school in 1942 with long hair and wearing a dress, a teacher took him for a haircut and found him a pair of overalls to wear. According to Mike Cox, when the drifter's mother saw her son, she cussed out the teacher in an average situation. I might say, hey, watch your boundaries, teacher. But in this case, it does seem like the teachers were trying to look out for the boy because they also stepped in to provide basic necessities. The drifter's mother made food, but only for herself and her boyfriend, so the children had to learn to forage. If they were lucky, they were able to bring home small animals they had killed in the woods. In leaner times, they would steal food from stores or dig through town trash for scraps. It was only when other parents invited him over for dinner and no one else seemed surprised at the clean plates full of unspoiled food that he realized his home life was different from other children's. With a love map as corrupted as the drifters, it was sadly not surprising when deviant sexual behavior began appearing in his history. Dropping out of school after the sixth grade, he began a sexual relationship with one of his half-brothers. According to Crime Magazine, he was a teenager when the relationship ugh, began, but no further information as to what kind of teenager. 13 years old, 18 years old, we just don't know. Sources also suggest that the two engaged in bestiality, first slitting the throats of livestock such as goats and sheep before engaging in sex acts. In March 1952, the drifter and two of his brothers were arrested for breaking into an appliance store, during which he stole a battery-powered radio. 
The judge sent him to the Beaumont Training School for Boys, a vocational school for juveniles in Beaumont, Virginia. Before being transferred from the county jail in Christianburg, the drifter sawed through the bars and escaped. He spent the next week hiding in crawl spaces before turning himself in and being taken to the vocational school. While he hated being confined, he was getting basic necessities for the first time. The school had plumbing, electricity, heating, three meals a day, and even a black and white TV. School officials thought the drifter was a good inmate, even saying he had a good personality, but added that he needed close supervision on his jobs. The one big stumbling block to his rehabilitation was obvious to all, his mother. On numerous occasions, he wrote to her, asking for clothes and other personal items that were permitted to make their time there a bit more comfortable. Her response was always, she didn't have any money for him. She never sent anything and never visited. A few months before his 17th birthday, he graduated to the sixth grade, a sad reminder of the neglect at home. By that birthday, an assessor at the school found him to be generally improving and, quote, trying hard to do what is right, end quote. While still a teenager, the drifter abided by regulations, did what was required of him, and usually appeared happy, even cheerful. His second conviction, however, came on June 10, 1954, when the drifter was just 18. He was convicted of more than a dozen burglary counts around the Richmond area, this time, his mother didn't even bother appearing at his trial. He was sentenced to four years at a state penitentiary in Richmond. Obviously different from the vocational school, he now found himself working on a chain gang in the fields or in a road gang. But, according to Mike Cox, he once again had a reliable roof over his head and three square meals a day. Those positives were eventually outweighed by the negatives— and the desire to escape grew too strong to ignore. In May 1956, he and another inmate escaped while on a work crew. Crossing the straight line into Kentucky, they stole a car and drove north, getting as far as Troy, Ohio, before running out of gas. Abandoning the car, they hitchhiked into Michigan, stole another car, and then drove toward the drifter's sister's house. But law enforcement arrested them in Clinton, Michigan, on June 19th. Appearing in court, he was convicted under the Federal Dire Act, which outlawed the transportation of a stolen car across state lines. Before he returned to Virginia to finish his sentence, he first had to serve an 18-month sentence at a federal prison in Chillicothe, Ohio. After his release, he went north to live with his half-sister, Opal Jennings, in Tecumseh, Michigan. According to Mike Cox, prison officials wrote to her multiple times, insinuating that if she didn't open her home to her half-brother, he would not be released a day early and would be forced to serve his entire sentence. She decided to give him a chance, and so on September 2, 1959, the drifter was released. He made his way to Michigan, and all seemed to be going well, at least until his mother came for a visit. Now 74, his mother was in ill health and demanded the drifter move back to Virginia to care for her. He refused, supposedly because there was a woman he had corresponded with while he was in prison and now wanted to marry. According to Crime Library, on January 11, 1960, this ongoing argument between him and his mother hit its boiling point. The drifter grabbed a knife, plunged it into his mother's neck, 
When he was asked what happened, he said only that he had knocked her down and she died of a heart attack. Okay then. Opal found her mother dead on the kitchen floor and ran the two blocks to the police station. Chief George Kilborn followed her back to her house and knew almost immediately this was not a natural death, as Opal had first thought. There was a cut or a bruise on the victim's neck, and when he asked Opal about it, she said that her mother and brother were fighting last night, but she couldn't remember it coming to blows. It became quickly clear that the drifter was the last person to see his mother alive, and Kilborn put out a broadcast over Michigan and Ohio police radios to be on the lookout for him. That broadcast would prove fruitful just five days later. Around 1.30 in the afternoon of January 16th, the drifter was picked up by an Ohio Highway Patrol officer just west of Toledo. He was trying to hitchhike, but the officer thought he looked suspicious as he looked shabby and also didn't have any bags. Unluckily for the drifter, Officer Lowe had read all of the broadcasts before going on patrol, so when the hitchhiker handed over his ID, Lowe arrested him for first-degree murder. As his prisoner swore he had the wrong man, Lowe called into dispatch to verify that the warrant was still good. It was, and dispatch alerted Chief Kilborn of the arrest. During his search of the drifter, Officer Lowe found a pocket knife in his overcoat. Reaching the station, he turned the knife over to evidence and took the prisoner's statement. According to Mike Cox, after the drifter signed his statement, officers took him to the hospital to treat a swollen ankle and a nasty blister on the bottom of his foot. When asked what happened, he told them he had probably walked at least 200 miles. That was a hint of lies to come. Convicted of second-degree murder, he once again headed for prison, this time to Jackson State Penitentiary in southern Michigan. A social worker assessed him after he arrived and noted he was, quote, a very inadequate individual with feelings of insecurity and inferiority, end quote. After two suicide attempts, he was transferred to a mental health facility for the remainder of his sentence. He served half of his sentence, 10 of the 20 years, before he was paroled in 1970. Shortly after his release, he was again arrested, this time for the attempted kidnapping of two teenage girls. Convicted, he was remanded back to the cell block he had just left, and there he would stay until 1975. Thirty-nine years old when he was released that year, the drifter had spent most of the last 20 years institutionalized, literally half his life. He had to tell the parole board where he was going once released, and Michigan was insistent he not stay in their state. His official plan was to travel to Port Deposit, Maryland, home of two of his half-sisters, Nora and Wanda. Perhaps drawing on the lingering lesions from the vocational school, he bounced from farm work to farm work, but never settled. To make matters much worse, he began to assault the young daughters of a woman he was dating. The drifter married the woman, continuing to abuse the young girls, who were now his stepdaughters. His wife, Betty, didn't seem to suspect anything, but her mother continually accused her son-in-law. By the summer of 1977, he'd grown tired of Betty and her daughters and decided to hit the road. One thing he learned was that having a home base seemed to make it easier for you to get arrested. If you wanted to avoid the law, you had to keep moving. From 1975 until his last arrest, he stayed on the road. 
1976, he met a man who would become his companion, sometimes called his shadow. Raised by his grandmother, allegedly a Satanist, the shadow was 29 years old when he met the drifter in Jacksonville, Florida. The shadow would later tell authorities that his mother used to take him with her when she would, quote, dig up graves in search of body parts to use in her rituals, end quote. The shadow also claimed to have started several fires as a child and to have committed his first murder at age 14. By the time the two men met, Shadow was suspected of a total of five murders across Florida, Nebraska, and Colorado. According to Crime Library, after they met for the first time, the two men began a sexual relationship. As they hunted for victims, hitchhikers were their favorite prey, looking for women for the drifter and men for the shadow. Their seemingly happy partnership began to crumble when Shadow's niece Becky joined them on the road. That, in and of itself, was hugely problematic, especially given that Becky was only 12. Here's another content warning. It's not good. The drifter began to molest and sexually abuse Becky. He tried to defend his actions by saying he had fallen in love with her. But no, ew, gross. In 1982, he decided to leave the shadow, taking Becky with him. The shadow was so angry that he allegedly killed nine people in six different states over the next 13 months. Finally arrested when he was back in Florida, setting a building on fire, the shadow was sentenced to 20 years in prison. He would never see his niece alive again. The drifter and Becky bounced around Texas until the summer of 1982, with only his story for details, we must take his narrative with a large grain of salt. According to his account, by August, Becky had grown tired of living on the road and wanted to go home. On August 24th, she was still demanding to be taken home. She missed her family, and oh, she was 12. The drifter told her it was impossible. He had an open warrant back in Florida for stealing a truck. But she pouted and cried, so he gave in and told her to get ready. Given his open warrant, he needed to stay under the radar and his truck didn't have plates, so they hitchhiked as far as Denton, Texas. There, he said he bought a six-pack of beer and again tried to convince Becky that going back was a terrible idea. He said she argued with him and even slapped him, and he said in that moment, she reminded him of his mother. The drifter grabbed a meat cleaver and stabbed the 12-year-old in the chest. She died almost instantly on the side of the interstate. He spread her body on the pallet they had used as a bed and raped the corpse. Sorry about this one. He would later say that he thought that was the best sex he had ever had with her. Now needing to dispose of Becky's remains, he decided to dismember her and scatter the pieces to delay identification. He removed her head first, then her hands, eventually ending up with nine pieces that he scattered in a nearby field. Since they were hours away from anyone who would know either of them, he figured it would take a long time to identify the mutilated remains. Still, he returned a few weeks later to bury some of the remains in a shallow grave and started itching for his next victim. Three weeks later, on September 16th, the drifter appeared on the doorstep of Kate Rich, he and Becky had lived with the 82-year-old in her Texas home for a while earlier that year. While Kate's family had initially been excited that there were now people to help take care of the elderly woman, they very quickly grew suspicious of the drifter 
and forced him to leave. When he appeared at Kate's door, he asked if she wanted to help him look for Becky, telling her that she had run off when he stopped at a rest stop. This was clearly a ruse, but Kate didn't know that, nor did she know about the butcher knife between the front seats. Once again, he had to stop first for beer, drinking several as he drove down back roads through isolated North Texas. Satisfied they wouldn't be seen, he stopped the car, pulled out the knife, and plunged it into Kate's left side so fiercely that he pinned her against the passenger door. According to Crime Library, when he opened the door, Kate's body fell out, already dead. As with Becky, he raped the body before dragging her to a large drainage pipe near the road and shoving her corpse and her clothing into it as far as he could. He returned to that drainage pipe months later, retrieved the remains, and incinerated them in a stove. As often happens, the drifter was arrested on a random offense, the illegal possession of a firearm. He was in Stoneburg, Texas in July 1983 when local authorities caught him with a weapon when he, as a convicted felon, wasn't permitted to have one. His name was not alien to Texas authorities. Even with her body still missing, he was a suspect in the deaths of Becky and Kate, with at least one witness seeing him with Kate before she disappeared. One of Kate's nine children had reported her missing on Sunday, September 18th, after they hadn't seen or heard from their mother in days. Even though the drifter had spent 20 years institutionalized, he at this point had spent the last eight years with the freedom of the road. Now he paced around his cell in the county jail, asking for cigarettes, strawberry milkshakes, coffee, and beer. According to Crime Library, he lasted four whole days before deciding to do something to get the attention of his jailers. He told Joe Don, one of the officers guarding him, that he had done some bad things. He knew it was wrong, he tried to get help, but he said he had been killing for 10 years. Now that the drifter seemed ready to talk, the officers prepared themselves to take his testimony and gather whatever they needed to close the cases of Becky and Kate. What they weren't expecting was the sheer number of confessions about to fall in their laps. After confessing to the murders of Becky and Kate, the drifter appeared in front of a judge on June 21st for his arraignment. He confessed again in open court, detailing the dismemberment of Becky and the stabbing of Kate. Then he waived his right to an attorney and said, in front of a room full of law enforcement and press, quote, I killed Kate Rich and at least a hundred more, end quote. Stunned, the judge asked if the drifter had ever been assessed by a mental health professional. He answered no, even though he had actually been assessed several times during his prison stints, but he still said he knew what he had done was not normal. The drifter swore in court that he believed he was competent to stand trial and was assigned Don Maxfield as a public defender. Maxfield entered a plea of not guilty for his client, whose main question was, will I be able to help find the bodies? Texas, along with every other state, had plenty of unsolved murders they desperately wanted off their books, and sitting before them seemed to be the potential perpetrator of many of them. To spread the love, they contacted surrounding jurisdictions to let them know about the drifter and to schedule interviews. Other states heard about the suspect that had traveled around the country for the better part of a decade, and they requested interviews as well. 
The small police station in Georgetown, Texas, became grand central for law enforcement officers who thought the drifter might be able to answer their unsolvable cases. Anytime a new officer would mention where he had traveled from, the drifter would say, Oh yeah, I got me some there in your area. The drifter drew pictures of his supposed victims, including whatever details he could remember. Those details would often include descriptions like very sexy or large bust. He handed more than 70 drawings over to officers and soon began to quote-unquote close cases. Probably the most famous case was one nicknamed Orange Socks. The victim was a woman found in a culvert along I-35 outside of Georgetown, Texas. She was nude, save for a pair of orange socks. According to author Mike Cox, the drifter not only described her and confessed to her murder, but he also was able to take officers directly to the culvert where she was found. On August 2, 1983, he was arraigned for the murder of Orange Socks. According to the Lubbock Evening Journal, the drifter laughed when the judge set his bail at $1 million. Ten days later, he surprised everyone in the courtroom by pleading not guilty to Becky's murder, even though he had confessed in open court. The next month, he waived his right to a trial for the murder of Kate Rich and was sentenced to 75 years. Now 50 years old, he would never get out of prison, regardless of what he did. That left him able to continue stringing along the cops, who continued to give him special treatment with no additional punishment. An article in the Paris News, out of Paris, Texas, from September 1983 illustrates how fatigued locals were after suffering through more than a year of drifter drama. One frustrated woman told a reporter that she wished they would just execute him instead of moving forward with any further trial or investigations. Her reason was the cost to county taxpayers. According to the article, the county had already exceeded their budget for legal fees of indigent defendants. In late fall 1983, the Texas Rangers led a task force centered around the drifter. Of the 126 murders he had taken responsibility for thus far, they believed at least 35 of them were likely truly associated with him. The others they weren't so sure about. On December 7th, law enforcement from all over Texas arrived in Georgetown to question the drifter, sort of like speed dating style. Then for three days in January 1984, more than 100 officers from 18 states and D.C. gathered in Monroe, Louisiana for a drifter conference to examine the cases that had been cleared and to study those that weren't yet officially the trial for the murder of Orange Sox began in March 1984. The drifter's defense was to cast doubt on his confession by playing the unedited confession tape, which showed that the drifter had contradicted himself and seemed to have memory issues while he was talking. The defense claimed the drifter was just responding to what the officer wanted. According to the Galveston Daily News, two psychiatrists also testified after assessing the defendant. Richard Coons from Austin and Clay Griffith from Dallas testified that the drifter was a, quote, volatile, drug-abusing, sexually deranged sociopath who was legally sane, end quote, when he killed Orange Sox. When asked how dangerous Griffith considered the drifter on the scale of 1 to 10, the doctor replied, I think you'd have to raise the scale some to find a place for him. The jury wasn't convinced by the defense, and they sentenced the drifter to death. One person in the courtroom who wasn't so sure was journalist Hugh Ainsworth. 
Ainsworth, who had already written a book on infamous killer Ted Bundy, was well-versed in researching killers. He began to dig into the confessions and the drifters' movements. Ainsworth's endeavor inspired Vic Fiesel, the district attorney for McLennan County, to do the same for the confessions in his jurisdiction. To Ainsworth, there were several missteps from law enforcement that called the confessions into question. Members of the task force failed to follow up on leads, simply taking the confessions at face value. One example that would eventually destroy the entire house of cards was that no one seemed to note the distances between the crime scenes and the times of the murders. Ainsworth's story published April 14, 1984 in the Dallas Times-Herald. It included an interview with the drifter himself. By the time it went to press, the drifter had confessed to a whopping 600 murders around the United States and in five other countries. It's worth reminding you here that the drifter drove everywhere. But after investigating for 15 months, Ainsworth and his writing partner, Jim Henderson, suggested the drifter might only be responsible for three murders. Not 300, just three. His mom, Becky, and Kate. The two journalists conducted more than 60 hours of interviews with the drifter and interviewed many of those who had crossed his path over the last 10 years. They examined documents and records, rent receipts, court and prison records, pay stubs, traffic tickets, and any other personal documentation they could find that would help flesh out the drifter's timeline. Ainsworth and Henderson charged that authorities either ignored or failed to pursue leads that would have caused cracks in the confessions. They also alleged that the officers actually amended information to conform to the confessions. Now, why would the drifter have confessed to something he didn't do? Was it purely for the attention and also strawberry milkshakes? According to Ainsworth, the drifter said to him, quote, I'm going to show them. They think I'm stupid, but before all this is over, everyone will know who's really stupid, end quote. There was one person who claimed the drifter had another reason, not for lying about the murders, but for coming clean about lying about the murders. The person he formed the closest relationship with while incarcerated was a lay nun named Sister Clementine, often called Sister Clemmy. At age 46, she had been providing non-denominational spiritual support at Georgetown for three years. She first met the drifter on Christmas Eve, when she was handing out Bibles to anyone who would accept one. Warned about him, she still stopped by his cell and said she would give him her last Bible if he promised not to destroy it. He took the Bible, and they began a tentative friendship that would last until the end of his life. She even baptized him on January 25, 1984, though they hoped they could get an ordained minister to do it for him again later. According to the sister's book, the drifter felt he needed to tell the truth because he had become born again. It was important to his newfound religion that he confess his sins, which included his false confessions. But the officers cried foul. How did the drifter know all the details of the cases? He had told them details that were kept out of the press and had taken officers directly to the locations of victims. According to the drifter himself, he was able to decipher those details because officers and rangers left case files open on desks in front of him. He was given almost free reign to walk around the Georgetown station, smoking his precious cigarettes. He even joked about the room in the station being his office. 
He could have looked at any file on any desk. Even a glance when an officer opened it during an interview could give him unreleased information. Law enforcement at all levels scrambled to save face. They claimed they were far more professional than to carelessly leave open files where the drifter could have seen them, which inevitably led to allegations that maybe they had actually intentionally fed him information. They denied that, too. Roger Draper, in a 1994 Texas Monthly article about the ethics of the Texas Rangers, wrote that the Rangers may have been so eager to close as many open cases as possible that they provided suspects the details needed to confess, a tactic the Rangers called refreshing one's memory. Another nail in the coffin of this confession sweep came when the drifter confessed to a murder in Little Rock, Arkansas, one that had already been solved. Nothing makes a DA question a confession like already having convicted someone for that very crime. This happened again for a murder in West Virginia that was determined to be a suicide, and then again in Delaware in a case where a suspect was already in custody. Given the streak of easily disprovable confessions, any further investigations or confessions were suspended on June 11, 1984. Not only that, but many of the cases that had supposedly been cleared were quietly reopened. The drifter believed his game had worked and that he would be able to base an appeal on the confusion, even telling a guard he expected to be free within a month. Years later, he would refer to this time, quote, traveling for comfort, all the hamburgers and shakes he wanted, and the focus of national attention, end quote, as the best time of his life. But freedom wasn't in the cards. Ultimately, the drifter was convicted of 11 murders, though he maintained he only killed the three, his mother, Becky, and Kate. Crime historians who have studied his movements and the confessions say the truth is somewhere in between. They estimate the correct number of murders that could be attributed to the drifter was likely between 40 and 50. The frustrating truth is we will never know the true number. One result of the chaos surrounding the confessions led to doubt surrounding the death of Orange Sox. The drifter's confession was the sole connection between the drifter and her murder. And now this was in doubt, as was the death sentence he had received for it. On March 22, 1989, as Mike Cox wrote in his book, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals affirmed the drifter's conviction in that murder. But even with the conviction solidly in place, the death sentence was on far shakier ground. He received stays of execution, allowing additional time for the appeals court or the governor to make a decision. In 1998, then-governor of Texas, George W. Bush, commuted the drifter sentence to life in prison, the only such commutation during his five years as governor. Quoted in the New York Times, Bush said that the questions raised about the confessions caused concerns, which prompted the commutation. Bush stressed that while the drifter was, quote, unquestionably guilty of other despicable crimes for which he had been sentenced to spend the rest of his life in prison, I believe there is enough doubt about this particular crime that the state of Texas should not impose its ultimate penalty by executing him, end quote. During Bush's five years as governor, Texas executed more than 150 prisoners. Now, the drifter would live another three years imprisoned, spending time with Sister Clemmy. As the new millennium dawned, his health sharply declined. 
he began spending time in the prison infirmary, and on March 12, 2001, Henry Lee Lucas was found dead in his cell at the age of 64. According to the New York Times, the cause of death was determined to be congestive heart failure. While it's rare to get an update 40 years after a murder and 20 years after the murderer's death, an update in this case did come in 2019, an identity to the woman previously known only as Orange Socks. Williamson County Sheriff Robert Chode announced on September 3, 2019, that they had identified the remains as 23-year-old Deborah Louise Jackson of Abilene, Texas. An updated sketch had been released to the press and was recognized by a relative of Jackson's. That relative offered a DNA sample, which proved that Orange Sox was in fact her sister, Deborah. According to a story from KVUE Austin, Deborah's family did not report her missing after she left home in 1977, which is why her name never appeared on any police reports that could have tied her to the discovered body. Sheriff Chode said he was proud to be able to provide closure to her family and to solve a 40-year-old mystery. To the sheriff, the case remains open, even though Lucas had been convicted more than 40 years prior. The sheriff seems determined to avoid the lazy mistakes of his predecessors and open to trying to find justice, finally, for Deborah. As for Deborah's family, they at least found some solace in finally knowing what had happened to their loved one and in laying her to rest. To research this story, writer and historian Jen Erdman relied on articles from Crime Library, Crime Magazine, as well as contemporary and retrospective newspapers, which included the Galveston Daily News and the Lubbock Daily Journal. She also referenced the book The Confession Killer by Mike Cox. The Catalyst is a production of Grab Bag Collab, created and engineered by Amanda Rossman and narrated and edited by Amber Hunt. You can support us and our other programs at patreon.com slash grabbagcollab. That's G-R-A-B-B-A-G-C-O-L-L-A-B. Special thanks to Daisy Egan for being our first pass editor and a collaborator on Grab Bag. Music comes from Soundstripe Inc., my dad, Bruce Hunt, and my son, Hunt Van Benskoden.